morning to you. Came across a survey recently. Asked the question, what's your biggest holiday stress this year? How would you answer that? What's your biggest holiday stress? Uh, okay, it was a rhetorical question, but okay, I guess you can shout out your answers. So, <laughs> over half of the survey's respondents are just overwhelmed with just keeping up with all of the activities and the expectations. That's, that's a big source of stress for folks this holiday season. And another half feel the stress of financial concerns, maybe shopping for the presents. Are we going to have enough? And one-third mentioned family events as a source of stress this holiday season. Now, overall, three in four Americans are stressed this holiday season. I asked Chad Summers how much he thought, and he said nine of ten. So I think he's carrying a little more than the rest of us. Now, hovering above the stress is the good news of Christmas. The angels shouting from on high, carolers singing happy Christmas hymns, and God over it all, about to do something nobody would have ever expected, not even the religious experts, especially not the religious experts, for what God's about to do strikes the intellectual as irrational. That's why God sends his messengers first to the shepherds, simple folk who are humble enough to know a miracle when they see it. Yet God is not only over us during this holiday season. God does not simply float above us far, in the, far away in the heavens somewhere. Not according to the original observers of the events that transpired in Bethlehem some 2,000 years ago. According to them, God is not simply watching us from a distance. The song has it wrong. God is watching us from a distance. You know that one? No. God is with us in the mess of life. God is with us in the stress. God is with us in the pain and the doubt and the grief. God is with us. Don't take my word for it, though. Let's go straight to the source. Listen to God's word, as written by the disciple Matthew, chapter 1, verse 18. But first, let us pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scripture to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Page 783, if you'd like to follow along. Matthew 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. 
her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had borne a son, and he named him Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Did you notice the awkwardness in our passage? Joseph is in an awkward position. In fact, God has put him in an awkward position. As the opening pages of Matthew unfolds, we find Joseph in a sticky social situation, and God is to blame for it. You see, Joseph was engaged to Mary. Mary was his fiance, and in those days, ending the relationship went well beyond calling off the wedding at this point. That's because in those days, the marriage is made official and legally binding the moment the couple gets engaged. So, Joseph must file divorce papers if he's going to end the relationship. And that's exactly what he intends to do. Verse 19, her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly or divorce her quietly, as some translations read. And after this came after serious consideration of the matter. This was the most righteous thing he could do, he determined. After carefully weighing all the options, this was a dilemma, a sticky social situation. His fiancée was pregnant and he wasn't the father. What a scandal! How embarrassing and shameful, the kind of thing that made you and your family the talk of the town, and not in the way you want. Turns out, God's actions have placed more than a little family stress on Joseph. Not knowing it was God at work, Joseph thinks long and hard about the situation in which he finds himself. This is a situation he did not create. It was not his fault this family drama. Perhaps you can relate. Nevertheless, the situation requires him to take some kind of action. Since he was a righteous man, the text tells us, I imagine he prayed about it for quite some time. What was he going to do about this situation? In the end, he makes this resolution. I must divorce my fiance, but I must do it quietly. Isn't it striking that this messy, stressful, awkward family situation comes at the very beginning of the Christmas story. It strikes me because that's how our lives often feel at Christmas. Stressed, overwhelmed, unsure as to how we're going to handle the relational tension at the family gathering. 
What's striking, though, is not just the similarity in situations. What strikes me most is God's presence in the midst of it. God is with Joseph in the mess, and God is with us in the mess, too. Here's how God first deals with Joseph. He deals with him where he's at. At his level of earthly stress, God speaks to him. God speaks to him in the ordinary mess of life and moves him to a place where he can see God at work even in that. I suspect some of us here need God to do the same for us this Christmas season, to move us to a place in the mess of life where we can see God at work. You mean to say that God is actually willing to get into the messiness where most of us live? Yes, precisely. It's the messiness, the unpleasantness, the awkwardness in which God seeks to meet us this Christmas. We need God to meet us in the messy if God is going to meet us at all, don't we? We need God to open a way for us, a way of hope and love, where there is currently nothing but family drama blocking the way. We need God to enter our complicated and highly stressed lives. And we need God to do what he did with Joseph, to move us through the situation to a place where we can see God at work, even there in the mess. If that's what you need this Christmas, then hear the good news. That's precisely what God desires to do in your life. God with us in the mess. That's his name, after all. Emmanuel. Im means with. Anu means us. El means God. See, those Hebrew lessons came in handy. Emmanuel, the with us God. That is the God we celebrate this Christmas. The with us God. To drive the point home, we just need to take a step back and see that it's God's very self that enters the human situation in Jesus. It is God, the Almighty, the Creator. God who decides to enter an entire world that is messy and complicated. God has done it in Jesus' birth, and God can do it again in your life. God can and will enter into the most complicated of relationships, bring wholeness and healing, and reconciliation. And I pray God does it for you this Christmas. Let's return to our text. What's up with Joseph divorcing Mary quietly? Why does Matthew slip in the word quietly? What, what do you think? He planned to dismiss her quietly. Joseph wants to limit, as much as possible, the shame that Mary would experience from such an action. He practices empathy. He puts himself in Mary's shoes. If I were her, what would I experience as love? He reckons that the right thing to do is to divorce her, but he's determined to do it in a way that causes the least amount of embarrassment for Mary. We should know that this righteous act of Joseph stands in direct opposition to the public shaming that has gone on in certain churches throughout the ages. If you're a reader, just think of the novel Scarlet Letter, 
and the public shame the young woman in that story was forced to endure, endure by the Puritans. That's not the way of Joseph, and it's not the way of Jesus. Joseph divorces Mary quietly. That's what would have happened if God hadn't interrupted his sleep. If God hadn't interrupted Joseph's sleep, Jesus would have been born to a young single mother, but God interrupted his sleep and altered his plans. But just when Joseph had resolved to do this, to divorce her, verse, verse 20, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Well, that would have been nice to know, Lord, when I was agonizing over the decision of what to do. <laughs> Isn't it interesting that God waits until after Joseph has gone through the process of discernment before clearly revealing God's will for him? That's been my experience with God as well at times. When making important decisions, sometimes God seems to wait until the last minute to clear things up. Steph and I were going to attend Fuller Seminary. I was sure of it. I thought it was God's will. I told my family and friends, I'm going to California. We flew from Grand Rapids to Pasadena. And in my mind, this was God's idea, God's will, God's desire for us to go to seminary at Fuller in California. California is warm and sunny. Well, Steph heard differently. We compromised on one year at Western Theological Seminary in Holland, Michigan. Holland is dark and cold and snowy, especially this time of the year. We agreed to one year, and then we'd transfer to the sunny state of California. I guess we can learn from those strange Reformed Dutch folks for a year, but then we're going to transfer. It wasn't meant to be, though. After no more than a few weeks at Western, Stephanie and I both knew that this was where God wanted us to be trained as pastors. That process of discernment where uh, you pray, you think, you carefully consider all the options, and you come up with a decision, and then God makes things a little more clear, changes course. That's the process of discernment that Joseph goes through. Perhaps you've been through it as well. God interrupted Joseph's settled conclusion as God interrupted mine, and it was all for the better. Just one little lesson I want to pull out from this before we move on. At the very least, I think this experience should teach us some humility when it comes to our own decision-making. We really aren't as smart as we think we are. <laughs> we may not be as tuned into God's Spirit as we think we are, not as perceptive as we think we are between distinguishing God's voice from our own. Truth be told, we don't really know what we're doing most of the time. But thanks be to God for God's help and guidance and present with us in the midst of it. Thanks be to God for entering the tangled mess of our complicated decisions and staying with us no matter what. If you have a major decision looming, I pray that God would give you this perspective and that this perspective would ease your anxieties greatly. 
this perspective of humility, it doesn't dismiss the importance of thinking things through. It's a good thing in the Gospel of Matthew to take things under serious consideration, to love God with your mind, as Jesus teaches. But it's even more essential that we elevate prayer and the surrender of our will, not my will but yours be done, and our reliance on God's voice for the major decisions of our lives. For God's ways are not our ways, and even if we get it wrong, God is still with us. God will correct us as needed, change course, and we'll be all right. For God's ways are not our ways. If we haven't learned this yet, we're about to get another lesson from the writer Matthew. He says, But just when Joseph had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from what? From the Holy Spirit. That's the most important phrase in this verse, and it comes at the end. From the Holy Spirit. Ek plumitas hagiu. This Greek phrase is found in both verse 18 and verse 20. From the Holy Spirit. God repeats it to emphasize its importance. Mary was expecting a baby from the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Spirit is the source of life inside Mary. There was absolutely no human initiative at all. That's the point of the church's confession that Jesus was born of a virgin Mary. The point is that it has nothing to do with a human decision or human initiative. Jesus did not grow in the womb of Mary as a result of human choice, a man sleeping with a woman. Jesus grew inside Mary solely on account of the grace of God who wanted to visit his people. Let's think about this spirit a little more, shall we? The spirit, the Holy Spirit, is sometimes called the shy member of the Trinity. He's always directing attention away from his work towards Christ. So the spirit, who's, who's the source of life inside Mary, this is the same divine spirit that shows up in the opening verses of the Bible. In Genesis 1, the spirit hovers over the waters and all things are created. This same spirit now is hovering over the womb of Mary. Why? In order to begin the wondrous work of new creation. It's a new beginning that God is up to in Mary. It's a new future that God is starting in Mary. It's a new creation that God the Spirit wrought in the womb of the Virgin. And just as the original creation was pure gift. So too is the new creation, pure gift, finding its source in the loving initiative of God. I find this mind-blowing. Perhaps I'm the only one. <laughs> but the Holy Spirit works from the cosmic to the personal, as personal as you can get, entering the womb of a mother. The Spirit creates new life in the universe, and then the Spirit recreates new life inside of a human being, from the cosmic to the personal. This new life in the womb of Mary is the life of Jesus himself, the eternal word made flesh. 
And get this, this, this part really kind of geeks me out here. This is what the Spirit continues to do in our own age. The Spirit continues to conceive a new life inside you and me. Can't you see? Am I pregnant? No. Steph, you should have given this sermon. The Spirit conceives a new life inside you and me. And it's the same life of Jesus. That's what Scripture says happens for those who trust in Jesus. Pregnant Mary is a visible picture of what happens invisibly in all believers. Just as Jesus physically occupied Mary's womb, so too Jesus spiritually occupies the womb of our souls. This doesn't mean that it's less real for us to say that Jesus lives in us spiritually. Not at all. The Spirit is not wimpy, but the Spirit is full of power and might and strength. That is the Spirit of Jesus that comes to dwell inside of us, Christ in us, as Paul repeats over and over again. Christ in those who believe. Do you believe this? Of course, unlike Mary, this Jesus dwelling within us is not detectable by an ultrasound, but it is detectable nonetheless. This Jesus within us is actually observable to others, and here's how. It's observable by the change in our character that the Spirit produces over time. It's observable by the change in our character that the Spirit produces over over time. At least that's the way it's supposed to work. Just as Mary's belly grows and grows and grows gradually over nine months, so too does the Spirit of Jesus living in us grow and grow and grow our whole life long, gradually. And others can actually see this happening if they pay close enough attention. Our lives begin to change as a result of this new life within the womb of our souls. And slowly, gradually, we start to show. We start to show the fruit of the Spirit in our ordinary, messy lives, fruit like love and joy, peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the reason why Christians are able to believe in the virgin birth. As crazy as the virgin birth seems, it's actually not hard for most Christians to believe. Why? Because the personal miracle makes the historical miracle credible. Commentator uh, Dale Bruner writes this. He, He says, One is reminded of the converted miner in the Wesleyan revival, in the 18th century England. This miner, this this coal miner, was asked by his mocking co-worker if he really believed Jesus changed water into wine. He replied, I don't know if Jesus changed water into wine, but I do know that in my house, he changed beer into furniture. (laughs) The personal miracle for this coal miner was that Jesus lived in him through the Spirit in such a way that he was freed from his addiction to alcohol, and now he could afford furniture for his family. 
That, my friends, is an observable change due to Jesus living in him. It won't show up on an ultrasound, but it's real. The life of the Spirit within this man truly was detectable, as it should be with us as well. It's this personal miracle that disposes us toward the biblical miracle. So let me ask you, have you received Jesus? (laughs) Seriously, have you received Jesus into the womb of your soul? In the same way that Mary received Jesus into the womb of her body, from the Spirit is how it happens. Have you received Jesus in the same way the coal miner received Jesus, in the way that leads to an observable difference in your life and character? If so, then rejoice and be glad, for you have been born of God. Christ lives in you, and whatever messiness and stress you face, the Spirit will continue to bring Jesus there, because that's what the Spirit does. He brings Jesus into human life. Amen? Now, to close, I want to speak to those of you who aren't sure about an amen, (laughs) aren't sure of Jesus, or maybe aren't sure that God's truly active in the messiness of our world. Maybe you have doubts that God really interrupts our lives with goodness and grace, at least not in the same way that God interrupted Joseph's life with a dream. If there's any measure of doubt within you, that's okay. Consider honestly with me this story. It's a story about my dad. My dad and Joseph have something in common. Both of their lives were interrupted by God through dreams. Before I tell you the dream, though, you have to understand that my father was not raised in a religious home. He was more like the coal miner before his conversion. They'd go to church maybe twice a year, and once his, once his dad bought a boat, that was the end of it. Truth is, the lake became their church, so to speak, and their boat became their pew. My dad's family believed in the religion of leisure, so to speak. Their God was comfort. In this religion of leisure, the ultimate salvation was a life of comfort, a life free of stress and unpleasant emotions. You have to earn this salvation, of course, which is the case for many false religions. You have to earn it yourself, and you earn it by putting in your time at a decent-paying job, even if you hate it, so that you could eventually retire with a comfy pension. Salvation, comfort, free of unpleasant emotions, floating away on a lake somewhere until you die. That was the religion my dad was raised in, truth be told. But then something happened. God interrupted my father's sleep and therein changed the course of his life and my own. This dream happened shortly after he married my mom. They were pregnant with their first child, my oldest sister. They started going to church because they thought church would help us kids become good, polite, moral citizens. That's what they, what they told me. But there was no real faith yet for them. They believed in God, sure, but they had not yet learned that they could rely on Jesus, trust him in everything. They had not yet received his very life into their own life, resulting in an observable difference 
and their behavior. That's when God interrupted my father's sleep with a set of dreams. The dreams would come on a Saturday night, I'm told, while he was sleeping. He would dream something on on Saturday, and then on Sunday morning, the pastor would preach that very same thing. I kid you not. (laughs) You have to understand that my dad is not a charismatic Christian. In fact, I'd never even heard this story until I had to interview him for seminary about his religious upbringing, and he kind of mentioned it. Oh, by the way, I had these dreams. (laughs) Now, the first time it happened, the first time he had a dream that came true in Sunday's sermon, Dad thought it was nothing more than a strange coincidence. Then the next Saturday rolled around, and there was another memorable dream. Next morning, a preacher would climb into the pulpit, and speak to exactly what my dad saw the night before. I know I'm speaking to someone, the preacher would say, to which my dad knew at this point, yeah, that'd be me. Now, for good measure, the Holy Spirit gave my dad six of these dreams, six weeks in a row, which may say something more about my dad than it says about God, (laughs) that he had to do it six times. God interrupted his sleep six times, and therein interrupted the course of his life, and my own life too, from a religion of comfort to a religion of sacrificial love shown most fully in Jesus Christ, born in the manger, died on the cross for us, and raised again. That's what God did. And on the morning that my older sister was baptized as a baby, my dad was baptized too as an adult, converted to the ways of Jesus. Here's the connection to our scripture text. All of this God graciously decided to do in hidden and subtle ways, just as God graciously decided to move in to Mary's womb. It was God's initiative in both cases. God decided to move into the mess of a 27-year-old named Gary Smith, a man who had little to no religious upbringing, a man who had already been divorced once, a man who, had, who was an ordinary, complicated mess of a sinner. God decided to move into the mess of his life. This leads me to believe that God wants to move into the mess of your life too. Don't try to clean it up first. It's too dirty in there, truth be told. Just receive the grace of Jesus Receive the life of Jesus given for you. He'll clean you out when he takes residence in the womb of your soul. Trust him, for he can be trusted. This goes for all of us, no matter where we're at in our spiritual journey. Maybe we've been following Jesus for quite some time. May we all grow in our awareness of the life that is inside us. Not just pregnant Stephanie, but but all of us. There is a life inside of us, my friends, and it's the life of Jesus Christ. May we daily receive nourishment from this life, bearing the fruit of every good work. And in the Spirit's power, may we bring this life of Jesus into the messy lives of others as well. Amen.